Hello, Internet, and welcome to the Sky Simplified podcast, exploring astronomy through a different perspective, one episode at a time. My name is Pranet Sharma, and I'm an undergraduate first year at Yale University, as well as an absolute lover of everything astronomy. Today's episode is special as it is the first time we've been able to record entirely in person after the COVID-19 pandemic. With me today, I have Dr. Larry Gladney, the Faculty of Art and Science, Dean of Science at Yale University, and an accomplished experimentalist and particle and astrophysicist. Today's episode is all about exploring astronomy through the eyes of physics. If this is your first time here, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us. The best thing you can do for this podcast is to share it around. So please let your family, friends, postman, neighbors, grocer, plumber, teacher, professor, anyone who you know about this podcast. Now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, it's time to begin. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. Okay, let's get started on today's topic, exploring astronomy through the eyes of a physicist. Dr. Gladney, welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you on. I wanted to note this is a special episode as after the pandemic, this is the first time we've been able to meet a guest in person. So I'm super excited for this one. So let's take a minute and please share with listeners your journey as a physicist and potentially your intersections with astronomy. So I started out um, before I can remember wanting to be a scientist, and uh, that's literally from the age of three, I'm told. But I didn't really enjoy science when I was in uh, grade school, uh, because most of the science that you get introduced to is around biology and maybe some chemistry. Uh, and I didn't like it in either of those, and I also just didn't feel as though that was the part of science that I felt was really important. Um, it's hard to explain because I really was too young at six or seven or eight to know exactly what was missing. But um, when I got to seventh grade, I was able to go to the library each morning and I explored books in the library, one of which was The Life of a Physicist, and it described what physics was, it described who did it, and it talked an awful lot, of course, about Einstein. And I, it was like, to me, a religious epiphany, right? This is what I had wanted all along. And so I immediately uh, became just wedded to the idea of having a scientific career in physics and, and never, never even thought of you know, like medical school or engineering or anything like that. Uh, but I had no real plan. I, I grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois, which was uh, uh, a, a city that was sort of 99% African-American. It had one high school. There was a second one, which was actually physically closer to me, but uh, it was so bad that my mother insisted that I go all the way across town to the other. And. Um, there, were, there wasn't a really big tradition of people leaving that high school and going off to, co to college in huge numbers. I mean, people did, but uh, it wasn't something that was kind of obvious. Like, you, you know, you go to a, a prep school and you're pretty sure that most of your classmates are going to go off to uh, a good school. And so 
uh, I took a chance on going to Northwestern where there were no other, uh, no other people in my graduating class of 695 uh, directed to go there and immediately uh, fell into a work-study position with the high-energy physics group. Originally planning on being uh, an astrophysicist, but I wanted to do experiment. My advisor in the first year was an experimental astrophysicist, and he convinced me that it would be more exciting for me to go downstairs to the particle physics group uh, and work with them. This was the mid-70s, so it was uh, literally right after the discovery of the charm quark, uh, and then shortly thereafter, the discovery of the tau lepton. And so when I graduated in 1979, I headed to Stanford, which is where both of those discoveries uh, had been made, and immediately started, uh, well, I shouldn't say immediately, I actually did think that I should spend the first year of graduate school kind of exploring other groups and other topics. But uh, then very quickly, towards the end of the first year, uh, fell into wanting to go with the particle physics group. Uh, is what I had done for four years in a work-study position. And it was also just a very exciting time because uh, it was understood that there were going to be new accelerators coming online during the time that I was in graduate school. Uh, one of them was, in fact, at Stanford at, the, at SLAC, which was then, it was an acronym for Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Uh, but the um, opportunities were just incredible because these new machines were coming into, obviously, a, a new era for particle physics in that it was understood that we were near some energy threshold, or at least people believed that, in which uh, new quarks would appear, and uh, we didn't understand where the Higgs was at that point, but it was the case that the standard model had just been verified uh, as um, theoretically and experimentally the most viable theory um, as, as the standard model. And so the idea of testing the standard model and finding things that would go beyond it was, was right there, right? And so uh, you couldn't find a more exciting time nor a more exciting place, I think, to actually delve into, into whatever particle physics was going to become. Now, as it turns out, um, there wasn't a Higgs to be found at those energies, and it was uh, true that there was a bottom quark discovered, but the top quark turned out to be much more massive and that waited uh, another 15 years almost uh, to be discovered. And so it was, um, for me, kind of the waiting period, like I've always been interested in particle physics, but it was when I discovered the connection to, to astrophysics and cosmology that I really understood that yeah, you don't have to study astrophysics directly, right? You can go for early universe, uh, understanding of the early universe by looking at particle physics, which tells the story of all of the particles and of the interactions between them that was taking place in the first few fractions of a second of the universe's existence. And so that's the direction that I went, which was to look at, at particle physics uh, experiments that were increasingly closer to trying to understand what was happening with, um, with early universe cosmology. Right? So I moved on 
from the CEF experiment, uh, which was slated to discover the Higgs and the WNZ, and of course, none of that happened. Uh, it did discover the top quark, but uh, by that time I moved on to looking at bottom quark physics because of the, um, the CPA symmetry problem, that is the missing antimatter. Right? We understand that there should be equal amounts of matter and antimatter. Our universe wouldn't exist, uh, certainly in the way it is today, if, it, if that were true. And so the question of what happened to the antimatter seemed to re re resolve itself by uh, three things that were really essential. But the, the third one that was uh, central was the discovery of how nature distinguishes between matter and antimatter, which is something called CP asymmetry. Uh, and so there was a way to study that directly. Again, it was an opportunity. We just happened to have the technology that could make it happen. And so I moved to that uh, for 10 years. And then after that, it was time to go directly to astrophysics to look at cosmology. And so I did that in a sabbatical uh, that I took at Berkeley in 2003, 2004. And so that's really been my career uh, up until now is pursuing telescopes. Um, you've had quite the transitional career ranging from particle physics to astrophysics and cosmology and everything in between, and I'm so excited to discuss your perspective in astronomy. Thank you so much. Um, there's a ton of cool stuff that you've done, and I can't wait to hear how it's shaped your thoughts. To discuss this topic, I've curated a series of questions about your journey through physics and about your ongoing research and work in the field, so let's begin. Um, I think one of the biggest hot-button issues in the field right now is general relativity versus quantum mechanics. Even people who are lay people in the field of physics who've just tangentially heard of it have heard about this issue. Would you be able to distill those subjects and the rift between them for our listeners? How are they connected, and what is the future of this problem? Wow, that's sort of the deepest question um, that you can ask for physics right now, in that the 20th century was defined by really two central theories. Um, the theory of, of around quantum mechanics, um, which is sometimes referred to as quantum theory, although there is no such thing as that, um, was early in the 20th century in the 1920s, uh, but then progressed very rapidly because of the very strong theoretical work that was happening, like really terrific giants in the field. Uh, you know, Heisenberg and Dirac and Pauli uh, and then Feynman in the sort of next generation uh, and uh, uh, Schwinger and Tamanaga, these, these people came along and, and in a space of 30 years completely uh, moved quantum mechanics into quantum field theory. And that allowed us to couple uh, quantum understanding with the thing that was best understood up to that point, which was electromagnetism. Uh, but uh, it wasn't quite enough because it didn't include gravity, and nobody could, could see a way to uh, quantize gravity. Feynman himself uh, tried several times to look at ways to couple quantum mechanics and, gra and gravity and never succeeded. And it's the extent to which those uh, predictions do or do not match what the model says that allows you to go back and say what the theory sort of predicts for this model doesn't work. That means either the model's wrong or the theory is somehow incomplete. And so for general relativity, uh, it wasn't really until the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s 
that we have both mathematical uh, uh, framework as well as new technologies based on, on fundamental physics that you could do uh, that followed on from things that had been discovered originally with the Manhattan Project, radio technology, um, for example. And so the question of, of you know, what is general relativity in comparison to what is quantum mechanics didn't really have to face over the course of the 20th century uh, a test in which you're beating one against the other until uh, basically the end of the century. And what happened at the end of the century was we found that there were two constituents of the universe which had never been even, uh, they'd been hinted at, but no one had any firm idea that they actually existed, and that's dark matter and dark energy. And dark matter and dark energy definitely can't be understood only in terms of quantum field theory. Uh, we don't have a theory that predicts either one of them right now. And the question of what does general relativity add is, well, general relativity allows us to see the dark stuff because even though it doesn't emit electromagnetic radiation, it actually does produce gravity. And general relativity gives you a prediction for what the gravitational effects should be on the matter that we can see. So we do have a way of basically testing uh, whether we've got a fundamental understanding of how gravity works at the really microscopic level, at the particle level, because we can produce predictions on the basis of that for the behavior, for example, of dark matter. And those can be tested in terms of their gravitational effects uh, in comparison to what general relativity would predict. So that's not a direct uh, comparison between the two in the sense that general relativity doesn't make a specific prediction that you know, uh, quantum mechanics disagrees with or vice versa. But it is a way of saying uh, if, in fact, we, again, make models on the basis of quantum mechanics that fit every other kind of experimental test, but they fail uh, in the gravitational test, then that gives us some hint that maybe general relativity might be incomplete and hopefully there would be a clue as to what you would need to do to modify general relativity to come to that. Uh, but that is based on an assumption. Uh, again, it's a really deep, theory, uh, poor philosophical assumption, which is that the universe should be understandable, right, and that it should be predictable. So that knowing just a few facts, you can, as Isaac Newton did, sit in your study and work out all of the rest of how the universe behaves, right? So when he came up with the universal theory of gravitation, he was basically able to predict orbits of planets, uh, use the heliocentric model to describe exactly how the planets move around the sun, and then make assumptions that, for things that he didn't know about, uh, that the same theory would apply to them as well, and they do, right? And so our solar system circulates in orbit around the center of the Milky Way galaxy following the same rules that, that Newton discovered uh, sitting at his farm in the 1600s. So uh, we've, we've taken that as, all right, eventually someone will be able to do exactly the same thing for the entire universe from beginning to far distant future. And uh, in order for that to be true, then somehow quantum mechanics or, or, or gravitation uh, through general relativity will have to yield something that we don't yet know. 
uh, in order to be able to complete the picture of how we get a universe which is highly improbable uh, the way we see it now, given what we think must have been a very, very simple beginning, right? Um, coming from the Big Bang, um, it, it's just not likely to get a universe that looks like ours, for sure. Yeah, and I think like, this is probably one of the most interesting ideas to explore because Einstein was very much fixated on this idea of simplicity in the universe. Mm -hmm. And in all of his equations, he kind of like wanted to go for the simplest option and that would often be the correct option. So it seems to be kind of like strange when you see all of this math that is really, you know, like obviously it's difficult, but that's like comparatively straightforward, that works. And then suddenly you realize that these two things are incompatible with each other, which just, I think, is one of the most interesting parts of physics and just makes the whole research aspect of it a lot more fascinating. Um, so kind of along the topic of that research, um, which field do you think is the most significant when taken interdisciplinarily with physics or astronomy? Like which field that people maybe normally would not associate with them do you think is the most important to the work that we're doing now and the work that we do in the future? Well, uh, realistically, um, it, you, you'll get different answers depending on who you ask because we use different tools in order to make progress, right? So right now and from the early part of uh, the 2000s, so just after the turn of the century, we, we had uh, a situation in which particle physicists had to think about what the next big thing would be, right? Both uh, from experimental uh, perspectives, uh, primarily that actually, uh, but also from the idea that we have to do things that would actually inform theory because we had by that time been um, using string theory for roughly 20 years, 25 years almost, and string theory had not resolved this issue of how do we get a universe that looks like ours uh, that's highly improbable from these beginning, uh, very simple um, uh, starts. And the question of what do we need to, to do, uh, in my mind, by 2004, 2005, right, so right after I finished my sabbatical, was really clear. And it's one of the reasons I switched from using accelerators to using telescopes. So uh, what we came down to was that there were three basic uh, aspects to particle physics. Uh, one is that you just build bigger accelerators, more powerful accelerators. The other is you build uh, more accurate instruments, um, detectors, and uh, accelerators that can operate with very high intensity. Um, and then the third was you use the universe as a laboratory. So you use cosmology, which means that you have to understand enough astrophysics to be able to separate off the things that are astrophysical from the things that you're observing that are actually cosmological. And to me, it was clear that it's the, the third one that is most likely to make progress. Um, and I can go into why, why that's true. But, uh, but literally, the first two require technological innovations that were fairly far beyond where we were at that point in time. So accelerators would need to be made much more compact and much more powerful per, per length. Uh, the second, which is more intensive, uh, experiments that would look for just really huge data sets 
uh, was appealing, but I had really done that with bee physics, and it was very clear that you wait a long time in order for something to actually come together and happen. These data sets, again, are technologically limited in, in terms of how fast we can accumulate them. And um, therefore, the place which had the most phase space for new discovery was cosmology. And it was very clear from um, a simple plot that telescopes were bound to advance much more quickly in terms of their, their, their science reach than accelerators were. For sure. And that's because we had glass and we had CCDs. Mm -hmm. And you could literally see that CCDs are following Moore's law. Mm -hmm. uh, glass, despite the fact that we sort of think that telescopes are something that was worked out centuries ago, in fact, uh, telescope designs took a, a big push forward in the 1970s. And that's because we could come up with computer models that could actually do ray tracing accurate enough to uh, allow us to do corrections. And then we could do adaptive optics and you know, uh, the whole material science of glass making for telescopes uh, and then to, uh, telescope lens making really took a, a, a really huge loop forward in the 1980s. So it was very clear we were going to be able to go to very large telescopes and we were going to be able to put telescopes into space. Uh, and that the two of those would have much further physics reach than we were going to be able to get with uh, technology in accelerators or even the detectors. So that being said, um, what you then need outside of physics in order to make progress is, of course, you have to be able to gather, analyze, understand huge data sets. So it's really data science. Right. That's like the cutting edge of what needs to advance in order for us to make real progress now. For sure, yeah. Um, and I think on the topic of your, you know, discussing telescopes, like the James Webb was launched recently, mm -hmm. and I think that was probably one of the most exciting moments, not only just in astrophysics, but in science of the last decade. Um, so could you kind of speak about that a little more, like, how much were you following, like, I mean, of course you were following that, but like, what was your take on it, what were your yeah. emotions through the whole thing, um, what was that like? So. Um, one of the things I worked on at Berkeley, and it turned out to be the major thing I did in that year, was to actually understand um, how to write down models that were predictive of, of uh, missions that you could carry out in terms of their physics reach. And so uh, at that point, Berkeley was very interested in putting together a space-borne telescope to get above the atmosphere. Uh, that would be able to have uh, a wide enough field of view to get lots of information about uh, the universe's history of expansion from very early times to now, or very near now. And then comparing those to what you could do with ground-based telescopes, right? And so I was in charge of the group that was supposed to make the, the difference. So the idea was uh, find an argument that makes it very clear that you have to go to space right. in comparison to the ground. Yeah. But it turns out, in fact, um, ground base was really powerful because you can make really wide fields of view. Yeah. And the reason why that's relevant uh, for understanding why I was not as excited as most of my astronomy colleagues are, uh, astronomer colleagues are around the James Webb is that like most space telescopes, it really has a very narrow view of the universe. Yeah. Uh, it can go very, very deep, of course, and, be, and see very clearly. But what you really need is to look at the universe in very large margin, um, as much as you can see. 
uh, in order to actually make both the statistical comparisons that, uh, to um, theory that you want, and also systematics. Uh, it's really hard if you come up with a discovery to say that it's not just some instrumentation effect or it just happens to be some weird property of this part of the universe. So you really want to be able to compare various parts of the sky with each other and actually to uh, build the data sets very rapidly and then to be able to compare those pieces of what you found in the sky to each other to see that they're consistent. So uh, that really meant moving to ground-based telescopes and so that's what I work on now with the Vero Rubin Observatory. Uh, which will have the widest field of view of any telescope that's ever been created. Wow. Uh, has the largest CCD camera ever produced by, by people. Uh, and also has the, uh, the, the data transfer power and the data processing power included as part of the collaboration to actually uh, have at least a chance of being able to use all of that data that's taken in by the telescope. So this is one where you'll be discovering hundreds of millions of galaxies, you know, millions, uh, tens of millions of galaxies. Uh, you'll be able to see, you know, thousands of quasars that are currently not visible. And for supernovas, which is one of the ways that we, in fact, was the principal way that we discovered the existence of dark energy, we'll be able to see them uh, to much further than before, and we'll be able to gather them much more quickly because they're going off in the sky all the time, but they're rare. And consequently, again, you need a big chunk of the sky in your field of view in order to make sure that you're seeing as many of them as are going off uh, as, as you can. So um, very excited for, for JWST, right? But really, the, the cosmology piece that we're really looking for is coming with these, this yeah. new generation of ground-based telescopes. Um, could you speak a little bit more about the Vera Rubin telescope and kind of like what its objectives are and like how it was conceived and kind of how you've been involved with it? Because that sounds really, really interesting. Well, um, it is, I would say, the premier telescope which has uh, explicitly involved particle physicists as well as cosmologists. So we got attracted to it pretty quickly uh, by virtue of the fact that its primary missions are split into four different thrusts. Um, the, the first thrust is dark energy and dark matter, right? And so that's what really attracted most of the particle physicists. Uh, but then it has these three others. Uh, so the first is that it will do as complete a survey of our own solar system as is easily imaginable without a very dedicated mission to do only that. Um, so it will see pretty much uh, more than 90% of all the near-Earth objects that cross Earth's orbit uh, that are somewhere between 100 meters or so in, in size or above. Uh, so those aren't planet killers, but if they come down almost anywhere near civilization, mm -hmm. they would have a really disastrous effect um, on, on the Earth and human civilization. Um, the Milky Way will also be one of the things that we'll be able to explore to unprecedented precision. And then we'll be able to look at the properties of stars and galaxies. Right? And so those three things that are not dark energy and dark matter are not the thing that I or most particle physicists are interested in. But um, 
the fact is that they come almost for free in the design if you're optimizing for dark energy and dark, and dark matter explorations. Right. So the Vera Rubin Observatory is uh, it's nearly unique. Uh, first, because as a telescope, it is a survey telescope, which means that you don't ask for time on it as an individual astronomer. You don't get your two nights a year, uh, as with every other ground-based telescope. Uh, it actually just surveys the sky continually, and it keeps repeating that pattern over and over again for, for 10 years, and comes up with a huge data set in that time, uh, tens of petabytes. The other thing that's different about it is that the approach to how you define the mission is really around uh, optimizing the data throughput. In other words, uh, let's say that there's some exciting thing that goes off like a gravitational wave observation and you'll have a bunch of telescopes that are going to change their direction and look to see if there's an optical signature that accompanies the, the gravitational wave. Um, it's not likely that we will do that with the Vera Rubin Observatory. Right? The, the survey really is the principal thing. Uh, after the 10-year uh, survey is done, then maybe it can be adopted to do something that's closer to, to what other telescopes do. But really, the idea here is that um, it, will, it will have the ability to reduce systematic errors by virtue of the fact that you have an optimized observing survey in which you'll be able to compare data sets taken in year 10 to those taken in year 1 without having a lot of assumptions as to what may or may not have changed in between. Um, the second thing is that uh, it is optimized in terms of the, or will be optimized in terms of uh, achieving the strategic mission. So uh, as an example, telescopes might start as something that does pure observation and then switch to doing taking spectra. Uh, which requires, again, for you to look at a small patch of the sky, maybe at a single object or at a, a few objects, and simultaneously take the spectrum of each one of those overnight. Um, again, we won't be doing that with Vera Rubin, um, and so we'll be depending on other telescopes that are actually making targets of specific things on the sky, taking the spectrum of them, and then figuring out how to use their data sets with ours. That includes um, space-based telescopes as well. Uh, JWST probably won't be a principal one for that, but uh, Euclid, which is a European space agency telescope, uh, is one of the ones that we're looking very closely and working with people now in order to understand how to optimally use both data sets. I think like it's it's you know like I am always astounded by how much is happening in the field at any given moment. And this just sounds incredible, just being able like to collaborate on this level, being able to collect data on this scale, it's, it's a little bit crazy. Um, and where do you see all of this going, kind of? Like, where do you think the future of physics and astronomy lies from our perspective right mm -hmm. now? What's going to happen in the field within the next 50 years? So I think there are really two things for me which are, are you know, it's hard to predict the future, of course. Yeah. Uh, but there are two things that I think are going to be really impactful. So the first is that the other unique thing about the, the LSST, um, which is the name of the survey that the Vera Rubin Observatory is going to carry out, is that it was designed from the beginning to be shareable. Um, so all the data will actually be available 
through the World Wide Web to anybody right. in the world. Uh, there's so much of it that nobody will be able to afford to download all of it, but uh, it will nevertheless things that are produced in intermediate uh, processing stages will be available to people who can really just sign into a website and uh, carry out science themselves with the same data set that is being used by the quote-unquote professionals. So uh, I think in the future we're going to find ways to actually have even particle physics experiments do some of the same things. Right now it's pretty much impossible for you to uh, log into a website and get a data set that allows you to look for your own version of the Higgs uh, at the uh, Large Hadron Collider. But I think that that's one of the things that will change because it's just recognized now that citizen scientists need to be pulled into this to share the journey. Yeah. Uh, scientists won't be able to, I think, just keep it to themselves. The second big thing is that we are kind of at um, crossroads where it's not immediately clear to us that there is going to be a big breakthrough or a big observation, a big discovery that is going to just change everything. Um, now we've been at this situation before, right? And so in the early 1900s, right at the, the turn of the last century, there was this prediction that um, you know the, all of physics is going to progress in the sixth place of decimals, right, right. as it's called. Uh, so we, we certainly want to be careful about making a prediction like that again. But it probably right now seems more likely that uh, we're going to have something that happens because there are things that we think we understand really well and as we keep tweaking down on them, we, we discover that there's an incompatibility that can't be resolved. Right. And that that is sort of the clue as to where uh, physics is going to go next. Which makes it really hard because we don't know where that tweak will come from, right? It's not something that we're getting hints of right now. And so all of these things where somebody says, oh, there's a bump in the LSC data, right? I, I, I've seen many, many bumps by this point. Uh, and they work out, and literally, they work out to be nothing, right? They're statistical flukes. Right. But nevertheless, people get excited about them, and so that's fine. Uh, but it's, I don't think it's likely that we're just going to see a bump in the way that we did for the discovery of the charm cork, and everybody will say, all right, well, now we've got this great insight as to what's happening in fundamental physics. Um, now, I could be wrong, right? There may be something along the lines, but it's so hard now to do these experiments that uh, if there were really anything big out there, there would already be hints of it, which I think would be more certain than the kinds of things that we're, we're currently finding. Uh, plus, it's the case that if we kind of look at the most extreme things that we're discovering now, those like black holes, right? The very largest black holes are larger than they should be. Uh, the behavior of these black holes is is predicted by general relativity, but there are things about their their behavior inside of the event horizon which we have not been able to, and won't be able to explore experimentally directly. But it now turns out that you can do indirect experiments, right? So one of the ways that we might find a way to directly look at conversations between quantum mechanics and general relativity is that we can simulate things like quantum entanglement. So if there are parts of string theory that predict that entanglement leads to gravitation, 
which is one of the one of the hints that we do have about new physics. Uh, that might actually be testable in tabletop experiments right. that are going on. So uh, I think it'll be things like that that sort of direct us in the future, rather than building really huge experiments and then having them discover a big new something. You know, it really feels like the sky isn't even the limit sometimes with physics, and that just gets me really excited about it. Um, and kind of to wrap things up, is there any advice that you have for listeners who may be prospective physicists or just scientists in general, or casual people who just want to learn more about the field? Persistence. Uh, if you're interested in it, you have to keep pursuing it and asking questions about it. That was the, the first lesson I learned in physics going to college was that um, there are lots of smart people, and so being smart doesn't distinguish you. Uh, there are lots of people who are creative, and so that does distinguish you to some extent, but there might not actually be, just because of the period of time in which you happen to live, anything interesting that's reachable, no matter how creative you are. And so uh, it's really the long-term view that somewhere along the line there are going to be clues uh, or hints that's really necessary. And consequently, when I got selected for this work-study position, uh, it wasn't because I had anything coming from high school. Uh, I couldn't answer any of the questions that I was asked. I couldn't solder. I had taken Fortran, but I hadn't really done any, didn't have really any experience at writing programs. I couldn't design digital circuitry, right, all of these things, using an oscilloscope. Uh, and so I left thinking that, you know, maybe physics isn't for me because they're looking for people who know all these things just coming in as, as first-year students. Um, but when I went back, basically convinced that I had to be told that to my face, uh, I got hired because I was the first person to actually come back. And um, I didn't really know what that meant at the time. It seemed like a crazy thing. But then after a while, you discover that nobody knows how to do any of this stuff, right? I mean, there's no manual. There's no textbook. And consequently, the only people who succeed in making progress are the ones who keep saying, all right, um, I'm just going to have to figure it out. And there's a lot of frustration with doing that until you actually do figure it out. But then eventually, things yield. Right? If you keep after them, they do. So if you're young and you're interested in this and you want to know more about it, um, obviously you can keep reading, but it's all the better if you actually just jump in and try to get engaged with it. And one way to do that is to pursue your professors, um, actually ask them. They're happy, I mean, overjoyed to talk about what it is they do that really fires them up and that they're interested in. And uh, you're at Yale, uh, if you're a student here, You've got tremendous faculty here right, who are really focused on the undergraduate education mission for the university. And consequently, uh, they do go out of their way to try to make it possible for students uh, as young as, as you could imagine to come in to be a, a team member. And you don't have to know what it is that you want to do. Uh, as I said, I came in thinking that I was going to do astrophysics and then moved into particle physics and then moved back into astrophysics and cosmology uh, over time. But that's the progression that is probably more normal right. than not, right? People come in thinking they want to do this and then find it's not really what drives them. Uh, but on the way, 
they actually discover something else. But that should evolve over time, right? I mean, science is changing, For sure. and uh, we should all evolve with it. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, listeners, I hope you guys are a little bit more enlightened. I know I sure am. Are there any websites or resources that you'd like to plug or any social media that you'd like to share? So there is www.lsst.org, uh, which is a great way to, to find out all of the stuff that's going on. You can actually see pictures. The observatory really exists now. The telescope is not there yet, but it will be shortly. And um, they're already taking pictures on the, on the sky with what's called the commissioning camera. So this is a great way to just find out about something that touches, as I said, uh, various parts of astronomy, astrophysics, and cosmology all in the same instrument. Uh, plus there's interesting stories you can read about the people who are doing the science. And so what you'll discover is that people come from all kinds of backgrounds and, and get involved in, in, in doing stuff that they never sort of thought that they would do. Awesome. I will link that in the description. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gladney, once more for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can direct them to www.skysimplified.com. And as always, clear skies. The Sky Simplified podcast is created, hosted, edited, and produced by Pernet Sharma. The music is by Pernet Sharma. For questions about the show, go to www.skysimplified.com. As always, thank you for listening, and clear skies.